Okay, if you want to join me in the book of Leviticus, we pick back up in chapter 20 this evening. In Leviticus chapter 20, sort of gives to us, if you read in advance, some of, I guess what we could call the penalties, uh, the penalties or punishments for those who violated the prohibitions against uh, uh, the sin and immorality that God spoke about that we saw set forth really in chapters 18 and 19. So if you remember in our last few chapters, God has been now giving uh, instructions regarding practical holiness and what practical holiness would look like in the everyday lives of his people, whether it was in their family affairs, whether it was in their business affairs, whether it was in their uh, sexual relations, how they were to conduct themselves in all different spheres and areas of life, God has been giving to them instruction, showing them what it means to be holy. Again, and the, the emphasis being uh, that that is the primary motivator for us as God's people to live holy lives because we serve a holy God and we represent the God that we serve and we are redeemed by him. We're children of God and therefore God was calling the children of Israel we've been looking at in these chapters to live differently, to live set apart. And he says this repeatedly throughout these chapters. And so in chapters 18 and 19, we've studied a number of different things that God has been prohibiting saying, don't do these things and don't behave in these ways ways like the people of the land of Egypt where you came from as well as the people of Canaan in the land where I'm bringing you to and now in chapter 20 he sets forth it's really the theme throughout the chapter and uh, it's kind of somewhat of a, a depressing and sobering chapter but God now sets forth the penalties for those who would violate those prohibitions and choose to sin willfully against the things that God has set forth now uh, many such offenses we'll see in this chapter were capital crimes, meaning that they were things that resulted in the death penalty. Uh, God will speak of being put to death. He'll use the term being cut off. And, and sometimes it seems when we find the term in the Bible cut off, it's clearly an indication uh, of death. There are other times, and I think we need to be fair, taking context of the scripture in whole, where God speaks of uh, being cut off, and he's speaking of cut off in the sense of cut off from the uh, the experiences and the blessings and the benefits of the congregational life of his people. So I think we have to be careful, uh, but certainly it seems the context in this chapter predominantly is about resulting in capital punishment or the death sentence for violations in these different areas. And I believe we find about 15 or so, uh, don't quote me on that, but around 15 or so different offenses, uh, not just in this chapter, but in the Old Testament, there were about 15 or so different crimes that could be committed in this society that were capital crimes that resulted in the death penalty, predominantly stoning to death because that was particularly the way that the nation of Israel would execute those who were to be put to death. Now, as we read these things, I understand everybody even has different uh, perspectives and opinions on capital punishment. Is it right or isn't it right? And, you know, quite honestly, this is America. You're free to believe what you want to believe and have your own opinion. Uh, but you cannot ignore the fact uh, that the uh, instruction of capital punishment having a place at times in a society, in a nation, was originally God's idea. Uh, that God instituted it. We see it all the way back as far as the book of Genesis where God tells uh, in the days of Noah that if someone would sink to a place where they would no longer value human life that God created and they would be willing to snuff out a life that God actually said that if a person sinks to that place, it doesn't say they can't be forgiven. It doesn't say they can't go to heaven and have eternal life, but God says if a person can sink to that kind of a low, then as a deterrent and as a consequence that they as well uh, should lose their life uh, through man. By If man sheds man's blood, then because by man's blood, his life, uh, in a sense, shall be taken. So, uh, again, these things may seem harsh, we understand, but please realize they are laid out as being essential in the nation of Israel in that day to prevent these sins and these ungodly practices from infecting the nation and from defiling the rest of the congregation. So, in essence, you have God saying, listen, 
I don't want my people to be infected by these practices. And we'll see a number of different practices that God said if they're committed, they were to be punished as a penalty of the death sentence. And God did not want these practices infecting the whole of his people. He knew the plaguing problems that they would bring. So in essence, God is saying anyone who is willing to defy my word and defy my word and in a sense put their own personal satisfaction and violate my standards for holiness and health and elevate personal desire for fulfillment, even if it does jeopardize the rest of the nation as a whole by what it introduces into the nation and will infect the nation with, then God says that I'm asking you to remove such an influence from the nation, to purge it from among the people so that it does not further infect others just because of the personal selfish interests of the person who wants to do that. And please understand, these penalties, strict as they were and hard as they are to swallow, no doubt produced a strong deterrent in the culture. Uh, it produced a strong deterrent in the society and nation from further participation, and it indicated sin has consequences. Uh, it's not just bad because it offends God who is holy, but it's bad for people who God loves and who God intends to experience a wholesome and holy experience. It destroys life and it damages everything that's good and wholesome in regards to what God's original intention was for humanity. And remember, God's people, the nation of Israel, they were to be set apart also to bring the Messiah into the world. So God needed to keep them pure as a people and wanted to keep them holy in that sense, as well as the fact that they represented God. We've seen that again and again. So the way that they conducted themselves in the world as God's people was going to be a direct reflection upon the world around them of, well, this must be what their God is like. If these are the people of God and they behave in that way, uh, then this must be what their God is like, whether that was in a negative representation or in a good and a healthy representation. So let's begin here in chapter 20, verse 1. Kind of sets the stage for you. If you can't bear listening to the rest of what's here, it kind of gives you a synopsis of what we're looking at. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and now these are the penalties, as I said, Again you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel... Or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants, that would be his children, to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land, notice, shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man, God says, and will cut him off from his people. So there again, take notice. Put to death in verse 2, cut off is another way of saying it there. In verse 3, he shall be cut off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. Now, we saw these things in prior chapters uh, where we talked about Molech was basically the god of the Ammonites. And the worship of Molech, Molech was considered to be a god of pleasure and a god of fertility. And out of the worship of Molech, God promised greater prosperity, or that god Molech, excuse me, promised to you greater prosperity, greater fertility, and it was uh, worshipped in conjunction with you know, sexual gratification as well. And Molech was basically sort of a molten uh, iron cast statue uh, that they would build a fire in the belly of this large statue and then have outstretched arms. And when its arms became red hot molten, they would then actually sacrifice their children by putting the child uh, into the fire in a sense that was built there in the statue Molech. And would basically it was a form of child sacrifice. You were offering your child in sacrifice to Molech, this God of pleasure, believing that therefore Molech would reward you with greater prosperity and fertility and greater pleasure. So basically it was, in a sense, not only idolatry, but it was a form of child sacrifice. It was a form of destroying children uh, and doing away with the life of children. Uh, again, in our day and age, we do it in what may seem like a much more hygienic and sanitary way, but we become guilty in our culture of doing the exact same thing uh, through abortion and other practices that we conduct as well. But because of the, the, the grievousness of this 
activity, notice, it became a capital crime. God said if someone does this, being guilty of not only idolatry, which would infect the nation, as well as uh, putting to death children, child sacrifice, it was a capital crime. Such a person, if they did that, were to be put to death in the nation of Israel at that time. Verse 4, God then says, and if the people of the land, notice in connection to that, if the people of the land in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face, God says, against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. So in, in verses 1 through 3, God clearly states the penalty for those who are guilty of idolatry and worshiping Molech and child sacrifice and destroying the lives of their children, telling the people very clearly in verse 2, the people of the land, they were to be responsible to carry out the judgment of God and they were to notice stone that person with stones. And God says, however... Verse 4 and 5, he says, if anybody in the land should hide their eyes from someone doing that. In other words, they see someone who's violating God's standard, who is clearly worthy of being put to death. And for whatever reasons, whether they you know, are concerned about their own reputation or they just feel like that that's a little severe or, or for whatever reasons, you know, in their perspective, you know, they have a different. Per and God says, and if you wink at that or, or act like you don't see it and pay attention to it and kind of just gloss over it, then God says, then you're inviting my judgment upon yourself. So again, here, not only the judgment for the one who is guilty of it, but God also telling the people that they were responsible to uphold the standards of God in the society, that they were to speak out against it, and they weren't to have a greater fear of man than they did of God, and they were to execute justice at times when it was necessary among the nation of Israel. And here God says, if any would hide their eyes, the idea is not wanting to deal with the situation. For whatever reason, God says that was a great thing that brought severity against a person as well. Verse 6, and the person who turns, God says, to mediums and familiar spirits, notice, to prostitute himself with them. Again, God sees it as spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution. The idea is you're, you're paying something uh, for a service and this was often the case with mediums and spiritists, those who were, again, this, you know, conducted seances and fortune tellers and, you know, psychics. These are things that we still have to this day in our, in our culture as well and those who would you know, pay forth uh, funds to be able to receive a service from them seeking dead spirits and guidance from, you know, uh, other forces Again, because these were legitimate evil forces, wicked spirits, things that exist. And we saw in the prior chapters in 18 and 19 where God said, look, you're not to participate in these things. You're not to consult other spirits. You're not to be involved in seances and, and witchcraft and seeking wizards and fortune tellers and psychics. God prohibited these things. Because he said it will defile and destroy not only a person as they open themselves up to other legitimate forces of evil that can damage and destroy their life, but it's inviting as well a vulnerability of those things into a society that leads to deception and leads to misguidance and destruction of people's lives. So whoever would be interested in turning to them things, if someone was guilty of pursuing those things, God says, I will set my face against that person, notice, and cut him off from his people because they became a dangerous person in the culture by leading people to seek other things other than the one true and living God. Again, notice that God is very, very concerned about seeking other things and other spirits other than himself because of the tremendous destruction it can bring. Verse 7, he says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and again, be holy. Why? God reminds them again, right in the midst of this, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep, notice, my statutes and perform them, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you or sets you apart. God says, I'm your God, I've set you apart, 
Therefore, he's going to say, don't, don't follow the practices of where you've come from and don't follow the practices to where you're going. And these were everyday activities. Understand, God wasn't just saying these things arbitrarily. These were practices of the people of the land that were taking place in that day. And God says, but you're my people. You should not live the way the world lives. Yes, the world does these things. Yes, pagan and ungodly people do these things. But God says, I have set you apart. You're different. You're to live distinctively different. You are to not participate in certain things that other people do as a way of consecrating yourselves and being holy as I am holy and representing me among the people who you are living among. Verse 9, he then says, For everyone, check this one out, parents, everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Wow, that's pretty severe. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. So a tremendous, tremendous emphasis, no doubt, would be put into the culture of the nation of Israel of having respect for parental authority. And again, this is just the expansion of Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments of honor thy father and mother. Uh, and taking that to a very uh, serious degree here, God says, whoever is guilty of, again, parental disobedience, cursing father and mother, doing things to bring hurt and harm against the parental authority in their life, and even the appreciation of honoring their parent, even in the latter years as they begin to become older and their parents begin to age, uh, God says, if you have disregard for that, those who have no reverence and honor for their parents... And, and the value that they play in the society and the culture, God said, they are dangerous people. They are dangerous people and a very severe consequence. Boy, that would have been a tremendous deterrent. Uh, probably would have uh, straightened out a lot of rebellious teenagers, I'm sure, right away. If imagine that we implemented that. Thank goodness. I'd sure be dead. I know that. I wouldn't, wouldn't be around very long in my teenage years, I'm sure, on occasion. But uh, rather severe, but respect for parents, certainly very important to the heart of God. Uh, verse 10 says, the man, also notice, who commits adultery with another man's wife. He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife and the adulterer, notice, and the adulteress. So both parties, the man and the woman, in the case of adultery, again, notice capital offense, shall surely be put to death. So adultery in the nation of Israel was a capital crime. If you committed adultery, God said you were to be put to death. A person were to lose their life in that culture. Understand, this is why David, remember when David sins with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, uh, and then remember after he does that, then he has Uriah murdered and the whole cover-up plot and all that kind of thing. And then you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David's confessions and outpourings. And that's why David ultimately says there in Psalm 51, sacrifice an offering, God, you don't desire or else I would offer it. But he said, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you do not despise. Now, why was David saying that? Sacrifice an offering, God, you don't, you don't desire it or else I would give it. Because David knew the law. David knew according to Old Testament law that there was no sacrifice for adultery. You couldn't bring a sin offering for adultery and have it atoned for because according to the law, David understood he should have been justly what? Killed. He should have been put to death. Very clearly right here, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That was a severe consequence in the days of the nation of Israel. Again, we look at these things uh, under the grace of Christ and the fulfillment of the law, and many of us look at that and go, wow, thank goodness uh, for Jesus Christ and the shed blood of, of Christ and the fulfillment of the law that we're no longer under the requirements of the law in the strictest sense as the nation of Israel was. But again, as I said before, these things clearly reveal to us, do they not, the heart and nature of God. That God considers adultery a very, very serious thing. A very serious thing. This is why, again, keep in mind, in John chapter 8, when they bring to Jesus, remember, the woman caught in adultery. And remember, they throw her down before Jesus and they start indicting her. The law says to stone her and so on and so forth. They were theologically accurate partially. 
Because remember who they didn't bring. The man. Which goes to show you, they weren't, they weren't truly concerned about enforcing the law. They were just looking to just create a scandal to try and test Jesus. And, and they were just using that woman as, as the pawn. And they were just manipulating her mistake in that situation. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. Well, if she, if, when you, let me put this way, when you catch somebody in the act of adultery, you've caught two people. You don't just catch one person. They, they, they only brought the woman. Again, because they weren't interested in genuinely fulfilling what the law of God said. They were just looking to use her and manipulate her misfortune and mistake she made in the situation to just pin everything on her and paint her with a broad brush as the bad guy, let the other person skirt off in, 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 as if they had no responsibility, and they really just wanted to test and indict Jesus in that situation rather than fulfill what the law said. But again, adultery, a very serious thing to God. You know, it's tragic in our culture, the, the very trivial attitude that people have towards, you know, infidelity with their spouse. It's absolutely tragic. When to God, it's a very serious issue and it has a very destructive effect. It actually was a capital crime at one time in the nation of Israel. Verse 11, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death and their blood shall be upon them. Now basically verses 11 down uh, through verse 21 reiterate some of these uh, different you know, inappropriate sexual practices, many of them very grotesque that we looked at in the prior verses. Uh, verse 12, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion, and their blood shall be upon them. Verse 13, notice, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman. So again, notice the practice of homosexuality. This is not, not homosexual tendency. This is not temptation with homosexual desire. This is practice of homosexuality, actually taking the desire and tendency and fulfilling it in a lifestyle of practiced homosexuality. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them, God says, have committed an abomination. That's a pretty strong word. The word abomination means something detestable, something grotesque. Listen, you cannot escape. That is God's perspective on homosexuality. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care how we're trying to redefine things in the same way we try and redefine adultery as love affairs, extramarital love affairs. No, it's adultery. It's selfish adultery. And in the same way, we try and redefine homosexuality in our current culture, and the word God uses is abomination. It's detestable. When two people of the same sex practice sexual relations god says they've committed an abomination and notice it says verse 13 they shall surely be put to death their blood shall be upon them so again it was a capital crime in that day apparently from god's perspective that is so dangerous that is so destructive in a way where it can infect a culture and a nation god says as a deterrent if someone commits that practice just like child sacrifice or adultery and disregarding marital vows, God says you need to remove the presence of that influence from a nation. Why? Because God says that's how detrimental it is. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not something, oh, it's no big deal. No, God says it's dangerous. It's destructive. Again, these practices, because of their dangerous nature, God said they needed to be purged from the culture so that it did not defile and infect with the influence that it would bring. Verse 14, if a man marries a woman and her mother, so again, the idea here again is selfishly, you're having sexual relations with a woman and her daughter, grotesque, God says it's wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. And the idea of burning with fire is not burning to death because in Israel, capital offenses were by stoning. So the implication here is they would be stoned to death and then their bodies would be burned. And the idea is that you want to completely, dis in a sense, uh, you know, disregard any reminder of their presence. So you would stone them and then burn the corpses afterwards to sort of purge your memory of those things because of how vile it was. Verse 15, again, now back to another grotesque practice. If a man mates with an animal, 
He shall surely be put to death, and you shall also kill the animal. So bestiality here. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Again, so that these don't become acceptable practices that, hey, well, this seems maybe this is just a new thing now. And, and I guess this is just a new way to express sexual desire. And God says, no, this will completely infect a culture, if you have tolerance for it, if you give it acceptance, and then worse, you start to give it endorsement, God says it's, it's going to destroy. And so God says if someone has sunk to this level where they have taken out of context God's design for sexual experience, they're mating with an animal, God says destroy both the animal and the person experienced capital punishment. Verse 17, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness. Now this is among siblings here. And again, the idea of seeing one's nakedness, the inference here is sexual uh, experience, sexual intercourse going on, not the idea of you walked out of the bathroom and absolutely, oh, I saw my sister. That's not the idea here. This is clearly an inference to incestuous sexual activity here. God says it's a wickedness and they shall be cut off from the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his guilt. Verse 18, if a man lies with a woman during her sickness, and again, that could seem to infer maybe a sickness, a condition, a disease. The Hebrew there potentially maybe this is a reference to like if someone's carrying an STD, a sexually transmitted disease, God says. If a man lies and has sexual relations with a woman with some type of a sickness, uh, he has exposed her flow and she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister nor your father's sister, for that would uncover your near of kin and they shall bear their guilt. Verse 20, if a man lies with his uncle's wife, that is his aunt, and he's uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear their sin and they shall die childless. And if a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. Now, God then, verse 22, says this in relation to these penalties. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land, notice, where I am bringing you to dwell may not, notice, vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. Take notice of this, verse 23. I have it underlined in my Bible. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. Now, again, we look and say, oh, man, this is gross. Why does God got to, you know, why does the word of God got to address these things? And why is God bringing up, you know, don't do this and, you know, don't have incest with your sister or your mother. Or, I mean, just like, oh, this is gross, you know, mating with animals. I mean, you know, a woman letting an animal penetrate her, a guy doing something. Like that. This is gross, man. What, what is this stuff in the Bible for? But listen, it's not in there arbitrarily. Look right there what verse 23 says. God says, these nations that I'm casting out and giving you their land, he says, they commit all these things. These were practices that people were involved in. These weren't just arbitrary kind of gross ideas that God said, if you're not careful, you could slip into those kind of practices. God says, no, the human heart is so depraved. Humanity is so iniquitous and twisted and defiled that when they don't have God, as an authority in their life, when they don't have the word of God as a standard, when they don't have a sense of accountability to their creator, then it's self-worship and the idolatrous lifestyle becomes whatever my pleasure is, whatever my desire is, whatever my standards of right and righteous are, those are what I'll practice. And that led to disgusting, incestuous sexual experiences it led to unbridled sexual expression in all types of perverse and distorted ways. 
People having sexual relations with animals, people of the same sex having sexual relations with one another, people disregarding marriage relationships and the marital vow and saying, you know what, well, I also need to have a few other experiences with somebody else. And it, it led to all these things, the you know, consulting spirits and mediums and all these kind of things, you know, seeking other types of uh, influences and spiritual forces, all these things we're reading, God says these things were going on. And notice that God says they commit these things and therefore I abhor them. Again, that's a pretty strong word. So God says those who are doing these practices and practicing these things, he says, I abhor that. that I abhor it, God says. And what is God referring to? Child sacrifice, adultery, homosexuality, incestuous relationship, seeking wizards and psychics and, and other forms of spiritual forces for guidance and direction. God says these are things that when a nation and a people practice them, God says they become abhorrent to me as a people. Now that's pretty sobering when you evaluate the American culture today. That's pretty sobering to realize that God says those who are doing those things, he says, if you commit these same things, just like the people who were committing them before you, that they're being pushed out of the land. God says the land, he says, even the land, nature itself will become so, in a sense, you know, uh, you know, opposed to it. He says the land will vomit you out. The idea is that nature itself will cause consequences that push out and push away a people from the blessings and the stability they would have had because of the moral decline and the spiritual, in a sense, slope that they begin to slip down. And God says, the land will vomit you out. Now, these are strong terms, and as God refers to these things, it's searching to realize as he spoke of those things how he felt about them so very strongly in the way in which he did. He says, verse 24, But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land. And I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. Notice, who has separated you from the peoples, which also means I've separated you from the practices of the people who are doing these things that are abhorrent to me and against my ways. You shall therefore distinguish between clean and unclean animals, between clean and unclean birds, and not make yourselves an abominable by beast or bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I've separated to you as unclean. Verse 26, And you shall again be holy to me, for I am... The Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Then God adds in verse 27 here also a man or woman who is a medium. Remember earlier we said those who turned and pursued psychics and wizards and seances and mediums and spiritists. Now God says there's also a penalty for the person who's actually providing those services, the person who is serving in that way to draw others into those things, a man or a woman who is a medium or has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death and they shall stone them with stones and their blood shall be upon them. So again, interesting to see some of the things that were actually capital crimes that God said were to merit the, the death penalty among the nation of Israel in that day because of how it would infect and destroy and deteriorate the nation of Israel and it would defile the people as a whole and God wanted to deter those things and their effect upon the culture. Now let me say two things in summary in regards to this chapter before we look at chapter 21, which again, and I realize we look at some of these things, we don't live according to these standards in the United States of America today. That's not our laws. We live according to the laws of our land. These were things that God gave for the nation of Israel. They reveal God's heart. They reveal something that was enforced in the time of the nation of Israel that God implemented for them. But certainly we look at them and, and there's a part of us, quite honestly, that uh, should almost be completely glad that some of those things aren't enforced because some of us may not even be alive in this room still today uh, considering what some of our life experiences have been uh, in, in former times. But, but let me, by way of application for where we're at today, just make two applications in reg regards to this chapter. The first thing is this. 
is because it is such a prevalent issue in our culture today. I want you to consider the confusion in our culture when it comes to the issues of simple morality. And how really, in a lot of ways, it violates just logical, listen, I'm going to say the word again, it violates logical human thought. And that is very simply this. Would you agree that most people, and especially the church, okay, maybe not most people, maybe that's a stretch, hopefully a good majority of people, but especially the church, would agree that some of the following things are wrong. Destroying children. Murdering babies. People say, that's, that's wrong, man. That's wrong. Well, it was only wrong in the days of Israel. It's not wrong now. This is a new generation. This is a different time. Most people, no, no that's wrong. You, would you agree that most people would say that committing adultery is wrong? And that people should not violate their marriage covenant and have sexual experience with someone else other than their marriage partner or should not go and have a sexual experience with someone who's married to another person. Most people would probably still say, yeah, that's wrong. Adultery is wrong. Would you agree that most people would say that sexual intercourse with an animal is still wrong? People would say, yeah, that's wrong. I don't think people should go around having sexual intercourse with animals. Would you agree that most people would probably say that sexual intercourse with their family member, incest, is wrong? Yeah, that's gross, man. Yeah, that's wrong. Then my question is this. Why is there this press to change opinion and perspective in regards to homosexuality? Isn't it interesting that all within the same list contained we would say, as was originally the intended design of the heart and nature and plan and perspective of God, child sacrifice is wrong. It's still wrong. Adultery is wrong. It's still wrong. Bestiality, sexual experience with animals, that's wrong. And it's still wrong. Sexual relationships with people who are your family members, incest, that's perverted. That's distorted. That's wrong. But yet there's this press today which contradicts logical thought where homosexuality was once clearly seen as wrong, but now all of a sudden it's not just right, it's natural. It's normal. People were born that way. See, this contradicts logical thought. And not that I want to harp on the issue of the confusion that exists in our culture of homosexuality, but it is completely illogical. The thought process doesn't even line up. It's just something other than, than just a, a, a idolatrous thing that we have brought to the forefront. And here's my concern. As we begin to change opinion and perspective about that, what's next on the list? Incest? Sexual experience with animals? Because human beings don't stay content long. We need the next high, the next thrill, the next experience. And, you know, I mean, just sleeping with someone of the same sex, that's getting boring now. I mean, that's old hat. That was last decade. We need something new for the next decade. Now people are, hey, I just was born with an inclination to have sex with animals. That's the way I was born. Well, don't tell me I'm gross. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Or I just was born to have, you know, sexual experience with my siblings or with my children or with eight-year-old boys. I just, that's the way I was born. And, and, and see, this is where it becomes a slippery slope. It's illogical and it is something that infects a culture and causes deterioration very quickly. And it completely contradicts, to me, human logical reasoning in and of itself. Secondly, let me say this in relation to this chapter. Please take note in this chapter, if it's not very clear on the surface, that the practice of sin... Any form of sin, there are many mentioned here, violating God's standards will always bring painful and destructive consequences. So whenever I'm tempted to sin, I need to remember that practicing sin, the momentary pleasure, what feels so right or seems so right, or my desire of, well, yeah, I know, but, but you know, I just, I really, I need to be happy. God wants me to be happy, people say. Listen, I understand there's an aspect that God certainly at times wants us to be happy, but God is never going to say, I want you to be happy. That means that you're not going to be holy. But that's just ludicrous and ridiculous. And God is never going to esteem our personal happiness over holiness. 
Holiness is what produces happiness. That's the way it works. When you live a holy life, a wholesome life, the way God intended, within the boundaries God intended, that's what breeds happiness. That's what produces genuine happiness and joy and contentment in marriage relationships and family relationships and in one's personal life. So again, we have to remember the natural outcome of sin is always going to be a self-destructive path for our own lives. And more than that, it becomes a, a destructive path that brings deterioration to families, to churches, to societies, to nations as a whole. That it always brings a polluting effect when we begin to introduce those influences and people begin to become more accepting of things that are outside of God's design. So certainly a clear picture of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin always produces bad consequences. That's very clear in this chapter. Now, chapters 21 and 22, which we won't look at, obviously, all tonight. We'll stop our study short here in a few minutes. Basically deal now with some regulations and instructions for how the priests were to conduct themselves as spiritual leaders among the people. Remember, the priests represented God to the people, and they also stood in the gap to represent the people before God. They had a twofold ministry. And the priests were the spiritual leaders in the nation of Israel. They taught the word of God. They prayed for the people. They were intercessors. They handled the sacrifices when the people would bring them. They assisted and facilitated the worship life. And in a sense, you could say, as went the priests, so went the nation. That when the spiritual leaders were in the right place where they were to be, it had a good beneficial influence and effect upon the nation and the people. But as the spiritual leaders became immoral and deteriorated in different ways, you see throughout history, both in Israel and even in times past in history, that has a direct deteriorating effect upon the nation and the people who they are sought uh, seeking, in a sense, to provide leadership to. And just as Israel was called to higher standards than the nations around them, in the same way, so the priests were to observe more stringent requirements than ordinary people because they had a, a privileged role, a greater responsibility in their calling and anointing. And with that priestly role came extra responsibility and really personal cost to live more strictly there. We'll see in this chapter, chapter 21 here, that for the priests, there were special regulations, or you could even use the word restrictions, for how they were to do two things, particularly how they were to handle death and how they were to select a wife or a spouse. So two things that were regulations that were more strict in their requirements for the priests and the spiritual leaders, because of their role, they had an extra responsibility to God, a greater accountability. They had to live more strictly. So God tells them here how they were to handle death differently and how they were to select a wife differently. And though these, again, special regulations don't apply directly to us as workers and servants in the church today from a New Testament perspective, they were for the priests of old in Israel, certainly there are principles that are found that still apply and are very helpful. And we find in some New Testament uh, perspectives that are applicable for us as well. And again, the Bible, remember, tells us in the New Testament that we today, all Christians, the Bible says we are a royal priesthood. So in a sense, we all have a priestly ministry too. We are to represent God to the world around us and stand in the gap as intercessors for people's spiritual condition. So verse 1 of chapter 21, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, notice the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. And the idea is so they would not be ceremonially unclean. They were not to touch a dead body. That is the handling of the body, the carrying of the corpse, or being near a dead body when someone was deceased. Notice, except, there was one exception, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who may have no husband, for her he may defile himself. Otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man. Notice that is there a, an ordained leader, a, someone who is in a place of authority and responsibility spiritually among his people to profane himself. Verse 5, and they shall also not make any bald place 
on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Remember, we referred to this in prior chapters, that these were practices of the pagan Egyptian and Canaanite people where they would disfigure their hair on their faces or their heads or they would, would cut themselves as a sign of mourning. That is bloodletting. The idea was to let the pain out. They would actually cut their flesh or tattoo their bodies. And this was all part of the, <coughs> excuse me, the pagan practices that they were to not participate in so that they would be different and distinct. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, nor shall they offer, uh, for they offer, notice, the offerings made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. So again, because of their role as priests, spiritual servants of the Lord, ministers within the tabernacle in these ways that they served God as spiritual leaders among the nation, God says they're offering the offerings of the Lord, they're handling the bread of God, the showbread as they would change it out because they were handling godly affairs. Because of that, God here puts some restrictions and regulations. And here, particularly verses 1 through 6, we see that the priests were to handle death differently than others in the society did. We're told here that they were not to touch a dead body. Again, death was a reminder of sin. The whole reason for death was because of the introduction of sin. So again, God did not want them contaminating themselves with anything that had to do with sin and death. They were to demonstrate a separateness from the things of sin. They were to live set apart and not be defiled by the things of death, which would render them, remember we saw already, that that would render a person ceremonially unclean. And for a period of time, you could not participate in the worship practices among the nation if you became ceremonially unclean. And touching a dead person, having contact with the dead, caused that defilement. So here God, wanting them to be available, they have a responsibility in the ministry, God says they were to live set apart. The only exception, and again this shows you God's compassion, is if it was an immediate family member. Again, which shows you God's compassion. That if it was an immediate relative, someone close to them, God in his compassion granted them the opportunity not only to grieve, but also in that situation to be able to embrace or to touch their loved one as a part of the grieving process. They could be involved and have contact, even though it defiled them still. God said in that case, there was an exception out of compassion for them. But other than that, they were to handle death differently than others did. And in some ways, this is a reminder for you and I as believers as in a sense, New Testament priests of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we too should, in a sense, understand, handle death differently. We go through the death process and lose loved ones just like everybody else, but the Bible says that though we grieve, and you should grieve, we need to grieve, we need to mourn, we need to cry, God intends for all those things, but though we grieve and mourn, the Bible says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We handle death differently because we understand that there is hope beyond the grave. We understand spiritual and eternal things. So, so death does not invade our life in a way, even though we still grieve just like everyone else, it doesn't invade our life in a way whereby it totally paralyzes and cripples and just completely destroys us for the rest of our lives because we understand the things of God and have a connection to God and though we experience death, which is still a very hard thing for every person because it was never God's plan and intention as we talked about before. We just don't have a file for death because it was never God's design. But the point is, is because we represent the Lord, we grieve, but, but as believers, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That's how the world grieves in just hopeless, utter despair where they can never regain their bearings even after the adjustment of the death process, God says, no, because you represent me, you grieve, but grieve in a different way. Let's look at a few more verses and we'll conclude. Verse 7, it says, also notice they were to select a wife differently. They shall not take a wife, the priest that is, who is a harlot, that is a prostitute. And you say, wow, that's gross. What would they do that for? Well, again, in the pagan practices of worship, many times the uh, temples had temple priests and priestesses and they functioned as 
prostitutes. So you would have these temple priests that would take a priestess as their wife, and in essence she was a prostitute or a harlot in the culture as a part of the uh, pagan worship practices. So uh, the priest of Israel was not to marry a harlot, nor a defiled woman, that is a woman who, the idea is, had already had sexual relations with other people, she had already been promiscuous with other men. And nor shall they take a woman who is divorced, that is a woman who had already had a failed marriage, for, from her husband for the priest is holy to his God therefore you shall consecrate him for he offers the bread of your God he shall be holy to you for I the Lord who sanctify you am holy so here God tells them they were noticed to be strict and selective in regards to also whom they would marry so another regulation put upon the, the priests, the spiritual leaders, is they were to be strict and selective in choosing their wife. God says here they weren't to marry someone that was sexually promiscuous or defiled in some way by previous relationships or a, they weren't to marry someone who was divorced, who had already had a failed marriage, but instead they were to choose a wife selectively. The idea is there they could marry a virgin, they could marry a widowed woman, there was no prohibition against that, a woman whose husband had died, but they were not to marry anyone. The idea here is that could potentially have a bad reflection upon their reputation by the wife they took to themselves or could potentially, from God's perspective, hinder or impair their ministry or their calling. So because of their responsibility spiritually to serve the Lord, God said, you have to therefore be a little more selective and strict in whom you choose to marry. There were some prohibitions and they had to be rather selective. And, and I look at this and I would just say this, I think it's really wise, really wise. When you're in a spot where you still have the freedom to choose whom you marry, don't just marry anyone. As a representative of Jesus Christ and someone who wants to answer God's calling on your life and serve the Lord and the ways he's called you to in your priestly ministry, can I encourage you, you know, whether it's you or someone, a younger Christian you have in, be selective in who you marry even beyond just, oh, well, they're, they say they're a Christian too. Oh, can I encourage you? Notice, marry someone who is spiritually compatible for your life and your calling. Because God has a calling for your life. And I would strongly encourage you, make sure that you marry someone who is sharing similar spiritual convictions. You don't want to engage into a marriage relationship, and I have seen this happen more than once, unfortunately, where someone, in a sense, you know, lowers their standards and isn't quite as selective spiritually in who they should marry, and they marry someone who then ends up hindering and impairing the plan that God has for their life to be useful and to be fruitful in the ways they would serve the Lord. Just be careful of that. Be selective. Oh, well, yeah, I just, that guy, oh, he's so cute. You see his muscles, look at him. Oh, yeah. Well, but, but is he spiritually minded? Is he interested in the things of God? Does he, you know, what, what are his, what's his value system? How important is the Lord to him? Is he a solid believer or is he kind of just a carnal Christian that's really hot? You know what I mean? What, what, what's important here? And the priests were to be selective. They were to use wisdom in who they married and God did that because he did not want anything to impede his plan and his purposes for their lives. And I think, this, again, this is just great counsel for the unmarried and for our young people.